What a wonderful assurance it is to know that our Lord is the King. He is King of kings. He is Lord of lords. And the Gospel of Mark, one commentator has made the observation that part of what Mark does throughout the Gospel is provide an apologetic for Christ as the fulfillment of Psalm 2, the Son that would come and reign, the Son to whom all must bow or be destroyed. And one of the questions in the first century that would come up as as people turn to Christ, well, where is He? And why are we facing these times of suffering and this adversity? He's the king, and yet Rome is persecuting us. And what we find in Mark's gospel and and all through the New Testament, but Mark begins his gospel by saying, this is the gospel, this is the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. That title meant something. It meant something to those Gentile ears The title Son of God was the title that was applied to Caesar, the king. And Mark was saying, look, there is a Caesar. He rules Rome. There are governors over nations. But this is about the Son of God. This is about Christ. This is about the one who came and lived a perfect life. The one who laid down his life for the redemption of his people. And the one who rose again on the third day according to the scriptures. And the one who ascended to heaven and sits at the right hand of the Father. And who will indeed return. And so Christian, fear not. Christ is the Son of God. He is the King of kings. He is the Lord of lords, rejoice in glorious hope. He will return. And the passage that we have before us uniquely identifies an element of Christ's authority as he silences demons and appoints his authoritative agents, the disciples, who will carry out his mission of establishing the church by proclaiming Christ from the Scriptures and establishing the boundaries of doctrine for the church throughout all ages until Christ returns. It's an important and critical passage that we're looking at this evening. And before we delve into the passage, let me just say this word for our comfort and and for challenge for those who might be here and unsubmitted to the King of Kings and to the Lord of Lords. Christ reigns. He reigns over demons. He reigns over death. And the reality is that it is appointed to men to die once, and after this, the judgment. We, We all are going to die unless Christ returns before that. For the Christian, hearing of Christ, hearing of his authority, seeing his majesty is our comfort. Because we understand that 
the moment we draw our last breath here and step over into eternity, we are going to be present with the Lord. And there is no fear in death for those who are in Christ. For those that are outside of Christ, you've not believed in Jesus Christ as the Son of God. You've not turned to Him to re- in repentance from sin for the forgiveness of your sin. Th- this is your opportunity. We don't, we don't even know how long we have to live. James says you need to say if it's the Lord's will, we'll live and do this and that. And the moment this life ends and you are outside of Christ, you are under the permanent condemnation of Christ. There is no exit after this life ends. And so as we look at Christ tonight, as we glory in the preeminence of our Savior, are you in Christ? Glory in that if you are. And if you are outside of Christ, take very weightily the claims of Christ, the authority of Christ, and the truth of Christ, and bow before the Son of God. Well, let's look at this passage here again in Mark chapter 3. The last time we were in Mark, we looked at verses 7 through 19, and that passage as a whole demonstrated Christ's undiminished authority over all created beings. And the importance of that passage was that in verse 6, we're told after a series of, of conflicts with the religious leaders, the Pharisees went out and immediately held counsel with the Herodians against him how to destroy him. And so what's taking place is that the religious leaders of the day and powerful political uh, entities of the day are making an alliance against Christ, plotting against Christ to destroy Christ. And what we find in the passage that follows is that even in the face of this plotting, Christ, the Son of God, His authority is entirely undiminished. In the chaos of the crowd, He is instructing His disciples and He's silencing demons. And then as the scene moves to the mountain in verse 13. He calls to himself those that he desires, and he appoints, and the word behind that word appoints is a word that, that also means to make. He creates a new office of the 12 apostles and appoints the men that are listed to be those 12 apostles, to be his authoritative agents. But the theme of that passage that we looked at last time is the fact that his, his authority is undiminished, even in the face of opposition. And so tonight what we're doing is zooming in to examine a little more closely the significance of the 12 apostles in the broader scope of the New Testament church. In other words, what Jesus does here as he appoints the 12 has significant ramifications for the church 
all through the church age until the return of Christ. And so we're just turning up the magnification and zooming in on that element uh, this evening. And it's an important thing to consider. Confusion abounds about apostles, about who the apostles are, even if there are apostles today. There are those who claim to be apostles. Uh, there, are, there are those who, in a more subtle way, uh, claim to receive revelation from God. And all of these deviations from Scripture, from the teaching of Scripture, are settled and clarified as we consider Christ's appointment of the 12 apostles and their role in the church. And the context alerts us to the significance. Immediately after Jesus censors the demons, look at verse 12, he strictly ordered them to not make him known. He takes his disciples to a mountain and appoints the 12. And so immediately after Jesus silences this demonic witness, he appoints the 12 as his authoritative witness. He appoints, Jesus appoints who will authoritatively confess him before man. Now there are many claims where people say they've seen Jesus a number of years ago, I think it was at a, I don't know, a Mennonite shop or something, uh, the shop owner wanted me to see a picture of a concrete floor. Okay, I'll see the picture. And then he pointed out a stain on the concrete floor. And he went on to describe how a woman who had recently been bereaved, had set down a bucket of coal the night before, went and picked up that bucket, and there was this stain on the floor, and it, and it, was, it was the pierced hand of Jesus. And he showed me a clipping in the paper that people had come to see this. So there's all kinds of claims where people claim to have spiritual experiences, where they claim to see visions or to see things that are Jesus, that are from God and are significant to them. And I don't deny the reality of that experience as an experience. But there are experiences that count and experiences that don't. Think about it this way. Maybe a little illustration will, will help. You, you know, I enjoyed playing basketball growing up. Being from Indiana, you had to. I had no choice. And I had a hoop outside our back deck, and I would sometimes just walk out the back door, and the hoop was facing the opposite direction, about 25 feet away. And I'd try to shoot a shot over the backboard and see if I could get it into the, into the hoop. And I, I hardly ever did. Uh, no surprise there. But if it went into the hoop... It's a cool shot, but guess what? It doesn't count. You don't go to the next game and say, hey, can you put two points on the scoreboard? I made a really cool shot back at home. Right? It was out of bounds. And spiritual experiences that cut against the grain of Scripture, 
that go against the teaching of Scripture. Do people have experiences? Sure. But they're not legitimate. They don't count. And as we look at the role of the apostles, as we grasp the significant of who, significance of who the apostles are, the, the role of the apostles liberates you from, from the conundrum of visions that are experienced in the context of, of false religion. It liberates you from the tyranny of interpreting internal feelings as subjective direction from God. It liberates you to love the Christ of Scripture and only the Christ of Scripture. And in that sense, then, as we love the Christ of Scripture and our love for Christ is cultivated, the the evidence of that is then that we're free to serve one another. That's what a Christian does. We're not constantly looking inside of ourselves trying to figure out the meaning of subjective feelings. We're called to follow Christ and serve the body of Christ. And as we understand the the significance of Christ appointing those who are his revelatory agents, we're, we're freed to rightly interpret the many false claims coming from so many false directions that create so much confusion. And so we have a simple theme tonight that we're going to fill out with, with, three, with three statements that follow. The, the theme is, is this. Jesus decides who will make him known. Jesus decides who will make him known. And, and we see this in the fact that the demons in verse 11, as they as they see Christ, as unclean spirits saw Christ, they fell down before him and cried out, you are the Son of God. What they are saying is orthodox. But Jesus strictly ordered them not to make him known. Jesus decides who will make him known. So first we want to consider that Jesus prohibits Jesus prohibits a false testimony. Jesus prohibits a false testimony. Now, again, the content of what is being said is accurate. This is the Son of God. But the source is demonic. It's, they're, they're demons. And so he rebukes them, he censors them, he silences them, he strictly ordered them not to make him known. Now certainly there's a day when all acknowledge who Christ is, but demons, demons are not permitted to be the authoritative agents of Christ announcing Christ to the crowds. Why is that? Well, part of it is timing, and we'll see that unfold more and more as the Gospel of Mark unfolds. The ultimate declaration of Christ, the Son of God, will happen in chapter 15 when the Roman centurion sees him on the cross. But here, we also have this aspect of enemies of Christ announcing him before the crowds. 
And Jesus prohibits this testimony. So let's take a moment and think about what demons are. What are these unclean spirits? And throughout your New Testament, there are a number of different terms that are used to describe the same thing. Demons, unclean spirits, fallen angels, all of those, it's talking about the same thing. So demons are spiritual beings. They're fallen angels who follow Satan. And this isn't a sermon on demonology, so we're not going to look at all the different texts where we could substantiate that. But we see this even in this passage that these are beings who possess intellect, emotion, and volition. They see Christ, they fall down before him. There's something about Christ that causes them to collapse before him. And they state who he is. He is the Son of God. They acknowledge who Jesus is. We'll see in chapter 5 with the Gerardine demoniac that they are frightened of being tormented also. And they ask Jesus for permission to enter the pigs, which he gives to them. Demons are spiritual beings. They're fallen angels who follow Satan. And they know who Jesus is. Very clear. They confess accurately exactly what Mark said at the beginning of the gospel. You are the Son of God. James tells us in chapter 2, verse 19, that, that the demons believe in God, but they tremble. It's not a saving belief. They know who he is, but their testimony is out of malice. Why? Well, they're followers of Satan. They're followers of the enemy of God. And demons destroy. That's what they do. Because Satan destroys. That's what he does. And again, if you look at chapter 5, just turn over there briefly. Chapter 5. When Jesus gives them permission to enter the pigs... In verse 13, it says, The unclean spirits came out and entered the pigs, and the herd, numbering about 2,000, rushed down the steep bank into the sea and were drowned in the sea. (laughs) This, This is a picture of what demons do. They destroy. They're agents of Satan. They're followers of Satan. They followed Satan right out of heaven, and they fell with him as enemies of God. They're spiritual beings, yet they know who Jesus is, but ultimately demons, as they follow their master, Satan, demons promote deception. Again, that is what they do. It's their nature. And I want to extend this a little bit throughout other passages in the New Testament. Look at the statement of this reality in 1 Timothy chapter 4. 1 Timothy chapter 4. Paul is, of course, writing to Timothy, giving him instruction about how to pastor the church. 
And at the end of chapter 3, in verses six and verse 16, we have a, a tremendous Christological statement, a confession of Christ. Great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. He was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up into glory. And Paul is telling Timothy, look, you preach this. You, you hold this forth. This is part of the pillar and the, and this, this is the truth that the church holds forth as the pillar and buttress of the truth. Hold forth Jesus Christ. But then look at, look at what he says immediately following in verse 1 of chapter 4. Now, the Spirit expressly says that in latter times, some will depart from the faith, devoting themselves to the deceitful spirits and the teachings of demons through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared. Then he goes on to talk about what they do. They forbid marriage and require abstinence from foods that God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. But look at, look at what he says about the source of this false teaching. Again, in verse 1, people depart and they're devoting themselves to deceitful spirits in the teachings of demons. And they've infiltrated the church. That's why he's warning Timothy. He's saying, you need to watch out for this. The church is to protect the confession of Jesus Christ, and you need to understand that, that there, is a, there is demonic energy behind false teachers who promote these ungodly things that look like godliness and aren't. Demons promote deception. And of course, we would expect that, wouldn't we? Because their master is a liar and the father of lies. John 8, 44. And so if we turn over to 2 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians chapter 11, It's interesting how often this comes up in the New Testament. And, and that's, why, that's why it's important for us to consider the passage in Mark like we are. That Jesus, what's happening in Mark, Jesus is establishing a paradigm that enables the church to defend the truth against the deceitfulness of our enemy, the devil, and his fallen angels. Demons. The strategy we find in verse, look, look at verse 12. 2 Corinthians verse 11, beginning at verse 12. And what I do, I will continue to do in order to undermine the claim of those who would like to claim that in their boasted mission they work on the same terms as we do. He's def Paul here is defending his ministry. For such men are false apostles, deceitful workmen, disguising themselves as apostles of Christ. And no wonder, for even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. 
So it is no surprise if his servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness. Their end will correspond to their deeds. Demons provoke, promote deception. It's stated clearly in 1 Timothy. Their source is the devil, their master, and the strategy, the strategy is that they look like an angel of light. They look like the real thing. It's the nature of what demons do. And Jesus prohibits this testimony because it is from an unclean, deceiving source. And the strategy that was taking place in the ministry of Jesus is a strategy that continues today through false teachers. But, but let's raise a question here. If false teachers are deceptive to the point of seeming angelic, how do you identify them? Right? What Paul is saying here is, look, false teaching and false teachers look and sound good. And the implication is that you cannot, on your own intuition, determine what is false and what is true. They look good. They're masters of deception. So how do you identify false teachers? We're going to get back to Mark, but we're going to do so by way of 1 John. And this will help set up for us the significance of what Jesus does when he appoints the apostles. Turn to 1 John chapter 4. 1 John chapter 4. Jesus prohibits false testimony. Demons are a deceptive source of false testimony. They work through false teachers that look like angels of light. How do you determine what a false teacher is? Look at chapter 4, verse 1. Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. For many false prophets have gone out into the world. By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God, and every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you heard was coming and now is in the world already. Little children, you are from God and have overcome them, for he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world." They are from the world, therefore they speak from the world, and the world listens to them. We are from God. Whoever knows God listens to us. Whoever is not from God does not listen to us. By this we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. John sets forth a test. How do you test the spirits? Well, first, do they confess Christ? Now, the demons were in word confessing Christ, but there's more than that. Second, look at their relationship to the world. 
Verse 5, they are from the world, therefore they speak from the world, and the world listens to them. And then third, third, verse 6, we are from God. Whoever knows God listens to us, and whoever is not from God does not listen to us. Now the us and we are important. Who is John talking about? When he uses that personal pronoun throughout the epistle, beginning in chapter 1, he's talking about the apostles, the ones who were the eyewitnesses of Jesus Christ. And so the, the third test in this section instructing us how to test the spirits, the third test is the response to apostolic teaching. Does what is being stated agree with the teaching of the apostles of Jesus Christ? Because legitimate teachers agree with the apostles. We are from God. Whoever knows God listens to us. Whoever is not from God does not listen to us. And so to set aside the authority of the apostles' teaching is by definition to be a false teacher. And so it's the authority of the Word of God as it came through the revelatory agents of the apostles that enable those in Christ to identify false teaching, demonic doctrine. So Jesus prohibits false teaching. And as we go back to Mark chapter 3, he establishes his authoritative revelatory agents. And I'm using that, it's the definition that John MacArthur uses, and it captures it so well. What are the apostles? The apostles are the authoritative revelatory agents of Christ. They're the ones whom Christ appointed to teach the church about him and to establish the boundaries of truth in the Scripture. Jesus has prohibited false testimony, and now he established his revelatory agents. You're probably in Mark 3. I haven't gotten there yet. All right. Look at verse 13. Jesus went up on the mountain after he silenced the demons. He went up on the mountain and called to him those whom he desired, and they came to him. And he appointed twelve, whom he also named apostles, so that they might be with him and he might send them out to preach and have authority and cast out demons. Jesus established his authoritative agents. Why? Because Jesus is the one who determines who will make him known. As we look at this passage, we're focusing on the office of apostle and not on the individual apostles. We're, we'll run into some of them as we continue to progress through this gospel. But our focus tonight is on this office of apostleship. And just a couple of clarifying notes. 
Judas, who's at the end of the list and who betrayed Christ, was not a believer, obviously, but the question comes up, and so we need to answer it. He was not a believer, and ultimately he was replaced by Matthias in the record of Acts chapter 1. And so when we're talking about the office of apostles, we could say it this way, the capital A apostles, we're talking about the 12 plus Paul. So what are the marks of an apostle? Well, what we find here is Jesus, he called to him those whom he desired. These are appointed directly by Christ. It's according to the will of Christ in person. They're appointed directly by the incarnate Christ. And as he did that, he created the, the office of the apostles, the 12, and he gave them authority. Look at verse 15. They taught authoritatively in verse 14. They were to be with him that he might send them out to preach. But then they also had authority to cast out demons. So they're appointed by the incarnate Christ, and they're able to perform signs and miracles. In this case, it's defined that they have authority to cast out demons, and we see this taking place as the New Testament unfolds, as the apostles establish the church. And they also then were eyewitnesses. The third mark of of an apostle is that they were eyewitnesses of the resurrected Christ. Turn, if you will, again to to Acts chapter 1. Acts chapter 1. And let's just look briefly at the end of this chapter where the disciples are replacing Judas, according to the Scripture, at the end of verse 20, let another take his office. So... Of one of the men, Peter says in verse 21, who have accompanied us during all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from the baptism of John until the day when he was taken up from us, one of these men must become with us a witness to his resurrection. And they put forward two, Joseph called Barsabbas, who is also called Justice, and Matthias, and they prayed, and they said, you, Lord, you know the hearts of men. Show us which of these you have chosen to take the place in the ministry and apostleship from Judas, who turned aside to go to his own place. And the lot, of course, fell to Matthias. Apostles are appointed directly by the incarnate Christ. They were able to perform signs and miracles, and they were eyewitnesses of the resurrected Christ. And it's important to notice in the, in the passage in Acts that there were multiple people who met some of these qualifications. They put forward two people, but only one was selected for the office of the apostle. And so it's simply further confirmation that what Jesus is doing in Mark chapter 3 is he is establishing an office, the apostolic office of his authoritative revelatory agents, the ones that are given the authority to proclaim him and to establish 
the church. And just briefly extending this, what was the ministry of the apostles? Well, ultimately, it was to establish the church, and we have that recorded in Acts 2, and then throughout Acts at various stages. They established the church of Jesus Christ, and they established the foundation for teaching and preaching in the church of Jesus Christ. One other passage I'd like us to turn to, Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2. Again, at the end of the passage, the end of the chapter, let's pick up in verse 19. So then, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit." Look at verse 20. You're members of the household of God built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. The significance of that statement is that the foundation has been laid. And how many times do you lay a foundation? One time. The foundation has been laid and it was finalized when the ministry of the apostles ended, when the last apostle died. No more extension to the foundation. The foundation is laid. And so the epistles and revelation, what what we have that then fills out the canon of Scripture, record the apostles' teaching concerning Christ and the life of Christ, and, and that's the final word. The final word of the gospel, the final word of God's revelation of himself through Jesus Christ, the final word of what it looks like to follow Christ, the final word of of what the church is to be, it's in the book on your lap. And there's going to be no other additions to that book. The ministry of the apostles was to start the church, establish the foundation for teaching and preaching, and record their teaching in the Scriptures. Jesus established His authoritative revelatory agents. Now, what is the importance of the twelve for the church today? What is the importance of the twelve for the church today? We're in Ephesians. Turn over to chapter 4. We've seen that Jesus silences false testimony concerning Himself. We've seen that Jesus established His revelatory agents in the apostles. And so now we're just touching on the importance of the twelve for today. Look at verse 11, Ephesians chapter 4, verse 11. This is speaking about 
Christ building the church, establishing the church. And Paul records, he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and the teachers to equip the saints for the work of the ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning and craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into Him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every jot with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Where does Paul start? He starts with the apostles and prophets, and he already established that they were the foundation And so the work of the evangelists and the pastors and teachers is to build off that foundation and equip the body of Christ to be a stable entity that is maturing in understanding of who Christ is, that is solidified in their understanding of Christ, that that then knows how to speak the truth in love to one another. And it all comes back to the foundation of the apostles' teaching, the authoritative revelatory agents that Jesus Christ himself appointed. And so when the teaching of the Scripture from the Apostles' foundation is being delivered, it's, it's the teaching that is from the authority of Jesus Christ Himself, and it's how we are built up, it's how we are stabilized, it's how we are protected from the deceitful schemes of the devil. And so when we think about the importance of the Twelve for the church today, Faithfulness to the teaching of the apostles, which is recorded in the scriptures, in the word of God, will stabilize believers instead of confusing them. That's what Paul says here. As you mature in Christ, there's going to be stability, so you're not tossed this way and that way by every wind of doctrine. You're grounded in Jesus Christ. Faithfulness to the teaching of the apostles will lead to a life of pursuing Christ-like holiness. And that's what the rest of Ephesians builds out and fills out for us. As you mature in Christ, this is how it comes out in your relationships. This is how it comes out in your interactions with one another and in your processes of thought. That following Christ and being rooted in Christ and being rooted in the authoritative teaching of the apostles recorded in the inspired word of God, it moves you to become more and more like Christ. It restructures your thinking and it restructures your life. And faithfulness to the teaching of the apostles, ultimately from the book of Ephesians, is the ground for overcoming the deceitful schemes of Satan. We deviate from the authoritative word of God. We become sitting ducks to fall into the deceitful schemes of our adversary. And ultimately, ultimately, faithfulness to the teaching of the apostles magnifies the Lord Jesus Christ who 
appointed his apostles. And so it's with joy, it's with joy that we receive the scriptural teaching that when Christ was on earth, he set and established the paradigm of silencing false testimony and of establishing his authoritative revelatory agents so that the church throughout all ages until his return would be solid and stable and growing as we await the return of Christ. We don't need to wonder what a true church is. It's been revealed. We do not need to explore the validity of those who claim to receive additional revelation. Scripture is the final word. The final pen stroke of revelation completed the canon of Scripture. That's it. All that you need for life and godliness is in the book resting on your lap. And anything that diminishes the final authority of Scripture, the final word of the apostles' teaching undermines the authority of Christ himself who appointed those apostles. And so this is truth that we guard with our lives, if necessary. The finality of the apostles' teaching, the closed canon of Scripture, invalidates all religions that claim additional forms of, re- of revelation. And the, final of the finality of the apostles' teaching also invalidates all subjective forms to hearing from God apart from the Scripture. This irritates people, it infuriates people, and it, and it infuriates those who reject the preeminence of Christ and who reject the authority of Scripture. It's all tied together. But with a calm certainty, we stand firm on the inspired, authoritative teaching of the apostles that's rooted in the authority of Christ himself. And we're confident that the Christ who calmed the storm on the Sea of Galilee is the same Christ who is with us in the Sea of Tribulation that's generated by the worldly, fleshly, and demonic forces around us. Jesus said, take heart. I have overcome the world. Jesus, Jesus decided who would make him known. And true followers of Christ will gladly submit to the authority of Christ and his apostles while boldly resisting every attempt to diminish the Son of God, the Messiah, the Savior, the Christ. So as we close tonight, we can rejoice that while Christ was on earth, When he established this office and the men who would fill this office, he was already caring for your spiritual well-being. He was already laying out for you everything you would need to follow him here in 2022. And of course, we're challenged. If that's the case, then we need to be students of this book. There is nothing more valuable than the final word of Christ through his apostles. Let's bow for prayer. Father, we thank you that you sent Christ 
We thank you for his perfect work. We thank you for the confidence of knowing that your word is complete and it is what we need and the only thing we need for life and godliness. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Thanks for listening from Truth Community Church in Cincinnati, Ohio. You can find more church information and other helpful materials at thetruthpulpit.com, teaching God's people God's Word. This message is copyrighted, all rights reserved.